Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 5, Episode 3, and today we are going to be talking about The Sea Beast from this very year, 2022. 2022. Do people say 2022? What a strange way. I'm, I'm leaving this in. This is all fine. As always, <laughs> my name is Zachary Orts. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by the land beast, Matthew Watkins. Hey, Maddie, how you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm doing good. How about you? I am doing, I am doing well. Yeah, we um, astute listeners will notice, so we recorded our last one, quite a bit of time ago i think i said at the end or the beginning of when we recorded it that i was going to after we did that go hopefully watch the mariners clinch the playoffs which they did do and then they went to the playoffs and now we are after the mariners played in the playoffs i i wholly underestimated how much of my life would be consumed by something that I had been waiting two decades to happen. So I traveled two different places for playoff games. We went to upstate New York to watch the wild card round, and then I actually went to Seattle for the division series. So when you are not home for the weekend, it makes it pretty difficult to record the podcast. But we're here. We are back. We are we are here for season five and yeah, ready to roll. And not only that, this, but with the playoff game, so the folks that are listening know what happened, but it was a very long playoff game, the the one that you were at it was, the stadium for. Yeah. And so it was going on, and I was like, not sure if I should text you or not, because I was like, I don't want to make him miss something, because one run could decide the whole thing, and I don't want to text and have him look down at his phone and have that be the moment that a home run is hit or something. So I was like, I'm not texting. I'm not sending anything. I'm just waiting to see what happens. And that's basically, I was waiting like six hours, like, don't text Zach, don't text Zach, uh, so, because I didn't want to interrupt your, your game. Oh, you could have. I Because I watch um, games on the internet when I'm watching here, I'm generally pretty delayed. So I actually have really good phone hygiene when I'm watching baseball because I can't look without, if I'm looking at my phone, then I am, there's the possibility of getting spoiled of like getting a notification that a home run was hit before it was hit or something or, um, which obviously isn't going to happen live at the game, but yeah, so I'm just sort of in the habit of only really looking at my phone between innings, so yeah, it makes it, well, I, I figured as much, but at the same time, I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to to ruin any moment. So I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna have discipline. I'm gonna wait. Anything that I have to say can can wait until later. It's not that important. The so. the bigger issue uh, was my phone battery, which was at like nine percent by the end of the game. So that was yeah, yeah that was pretty brutal. Six and a half hours. So yeah, it was it was crazy. Uh, very very crazy day. Yeah. Anyway. Well, well worth it, but this is not, uh, as much as I would like to have a baseball podcast, this is not our baseball podcast, uh, and no offense to you, but I don't think you would be my, my baseball co-host on our baseball podcast. <laughs> no, I would not be very good at it. Uh, that's not offensive to me. I don't know very much about it. Uh, this is our movie podcast. So yeah, the, the Sea Beast, what's... Um, this was one that you had really been advocating for. This was 
movie that was not on my radar when you watched it, but then since you had watched it, then it started popping up on like several of the podcasts I listened to. People mentioned it, that they were watching it. But how did you find this? What's your what's your history of this one? Yeah, so it was not on my, my radar until I watched it either. It's So one of the things that I like to do, and I, I don't know how much I've mentioned this, but I like to set a goal for myself for how many new movies to watch from whatever year we're in. So a few years ago, I did 100 movies, and that's a lot, so I haven't been doing that lately. But this year, I set a goal of 50 new movies released this year. And so a lot of times, that means kind of hunting and trying to find movies to fill in gaps, because it's hard to get to 50 unless you're consistently watching about a movie every week. And some weeks are kind of dead time where there's not a lot of releases, so you got to hunt around and find things. So The Sea Beast I watch because... It was like the only real new release that week that it came out that I wanted to watch. So I ended up watching it. I pulled it up on Netflix and watched it and I knew essentially zero. I had seen no trailers, nothing, no information. Uh, all I saw was that it popped up on, on Netflix. The title card looked kind of interesting and I clicked play on it. And that was my that was my background of this film as I went into it. Um, yeah, so so when you watched it, you'd heard me talk about it a bunch of times, but I basically knew nothing going in. Nice, yeah. I had heard you talk about it, and then I'd also, like, I knew that base. I didn't know a ton of people who had watched it. Maybe you were the only person that I know, like, <laughs> as a human who had watched it, but as I said, several different podcasts had mentioned it that they had liked it and then I think a couple of various discords I'm in associated with different movie podcasts people had also mentioned that they had watched it and everyone that I knew who had seen it had uh, either really liked it to loved it so I had pretty high expectations and I think the I think there's a poster of it so I had seen I sort of knew the visual aesthetic of the movie and obviously knew that it was animated and that was that was about it yeah yeah for sure um the only thing that i was gonna say that i had kind like background going in is that i love just any media that has to do with tall ships um Mm. you know big sailing ships uh and i had tried to think through some of those influences things like little mermaid which we covered but also Treasure Planet, Moby Dick, which I read in high school. And, you know, it's a classic that most people don't love, but I really did love it. And The Open Boat is a short story I love, or The Old Man in the Sea. And then I remember watching Pirates of the Caribbean and loving the ships and the portrayals there. And then I've played a lot of Assassin's Creed Black Flag and the Pirates oh, sure, yeah. there. And one of my favorite video games ever. And so all of those kind of influences, it just... Anything with ships like it, like this has is such a draw to me. I don't know. I feel the call of the ocean for for all of these things. Yeah, and I have a lot of those as well. But also, I my mentor in college owned a sailboat. And so a lot of times we would close a show and just be exhausted. And then we would just go out on the water so i and i've always liked being out on the water but i've never i'd never been sailing until then so definitely the allure of going fast on the ocean with no motor is something that 
that I have a great mm-hmm. fondness for. And until you do it, you kind of really don't fully understand it because you go so fast and it's really quiet, which just kind of doesn't mm-hmm. happen anywhere else. Um, yeah. 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 It, very surreal feeling. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's a it's uh and it's weird because like you're it's this blend between like the technology of the boat that you're on that's you know, it's not like uh, super advanced computer technology or something like that. You're on but you're on something that human beings have built, but you're also in a very natural environment in the water. And so the blend of these two things, uh, I don't know, it 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 makes a really interesting liminal space between like humanity and nature and all those kinds of things. It's I just love the water. I don't know. I um, the joke that my parents would always say is that I learned how to swim before I learned how to walk, mm-hmm. um, which isn't technically true, but I did learn how to swim when I was two years old, and I didn't start walking until after I was a year old. So it was like only eight months separating the two of them. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I just love the water. I did a lot of competitive swim when I was in high school. I did a lot of flat water racing as well. Things like that, like canoes and kayaking and things like that when I was in high school. So love the water, love the ocean, love sailing, all of those kinds of things. It's a, it's my heart very much goes to the ocean a lot of the time. Makes sense. And then as far as why we chose this movie, this was, it's something that had been on my list ever since you watched it. And so it's always nice to get to hit two birds with one stone. It's also, you know, not that we're opposed to covering movies that we don't like or don't like as much, but I do think it tends to make a little better episodes if they're movies that we're passionate about. And I knew that you were already passionate about it and that there was a pretty good chance I was as well and and not to mention like this is a Netflix movie like it was I think it got a little bit of a theatrical release prior to being released on Netflix but it was just a very limited one and other than that it was pretty much straight to Netflix so it's a movie that really feels like this platform which is nice to do when we're covering the platform yeah, we wanted to have some some Netflix originals in here, and this is a this is a Netflix original, and th- there's so many to choose from. A lot of things that we that we could have looked at, but the, the it hit a lot of those dimensions. Something recent, um, something that we could be passionate about, something that hits as well. We didn't have like a lot of um, movies for this target like demographic in the animation and something that was a little bit lighter than the the heavier stuff than the torture rama that we've been doing for the last yeah exactly two and a half months uh, (laughs) so so yeah so some a lot of reasons to pick this one i'm really glad that we did it was it was a fun one to watch so yeah uh i think it worked out well Great. What do we want to talk about? This movie came out in 2022, so, or 2022, as I (laughs) idiotically said at the beginning of the podcast. What did did you have that you wanted to talk about here? We don't have to talk about a ton, because we're in this year. Most people who are living it know (laughs) know what's going on, but what did you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I didn't even have a lot of like political things or anything to pull out because I feel like this one kind of sits in a space that isn't necessarily 
directly related to a lot of events from this year, only tangentially. You know, it deals with colonialism and racism and all that kind of stuff in the film, those kind of issues, which are always prevalent. But so what I wanted to look at was just the kind of the history of animation over the last few years. Yeah. And you, you see kind of, I feel like we're going through a transition period in animation because you had so much of the animation field was dominated by Disney and Pixar and Disney Pixar, the the two studios over the past like 20 years, something like that. And you saw a few animation studios that were kind of making waves and trying to make some things, but never really punching through too much. And up until about 2018 with the release of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And then you saw kind of the end of a bunch of series uh, with Toy Story 4 and How to Train Your Dragon Hidden World and Frozen 2 and Lego Movie in 2019. And then it was kind of like a weird period for the Pixar and Disney releases were not as well received with Soul and Onward. You know, I, I liked Soul a lot. I know that you liked Soul a lot. Yeah. But uh, I know that the critical reception for it was not as good as maybe some of the past ones. And then I feel like in the past the past two years, you've seen kind of a, a big change in, in the animation landscape and a lot of newer animating companies coming to arise. And with things like Spider-Verse and I Lost My Body and Mitchell's and the Machines and, and the bad guys and all these kinds of things that have come out in the past few years, I feel like we're kind of starting a new era of animation like we're right on the cusp of it and maybe we are maybe we aren't you kind of don't know when these things are happening until after they've happened but it feels like we may be in the midst of that kind of sea change of of animation yeah and those four that you mentioned i think four um or i guess i haven't seen i lost my body but spider-verse and mitchell's and the bad guys and then certainly the sea beast as well are all they all sort of cleanly fell into this category of animated movie where it was like the early buzz for those movies started happening and people were like, oh, we weren't actually expecting these movies to make a big splash, but we saw them and we really loved them. Like yeah. they're either very good to to great or very good to great and extremely moving or great and... Uh, has excellent representation so yeah it, it has been kind of a nice period especially if you want to see things that are animated that are not coming out of the disney pixar i was gonna say factory i think factory is a little unfair but it, they do have just like a way of churning out movies that i don't think is like devoid of artistry i think they're very good at having artistry but it is still just a little different like spider-verse and mitchell it's like a tone and a studio effect that affect that's you know like luca and encanto and raya and the last dragon and turning red and all of those things they're they're unique movies that have their own feel but they also feel like disney films and the pixar movies especially have felt so much more like disney films mm -hmm. in the past few years um so you've really seen i don't know you definitely see that studio effect and these other ones um um, the other one I forgot to mention that I would include on this is the movie Flea, which was 
um, you know, sure. uh, yeah. in the in the Academy Awards and things like that. And they're dealing with different kinds of subject matter and different kinds of tone, but still aiming for a younger def- demographic, but with a different kind of feel to them. So I'm really, I've been really excited the past few years with the way that animation is developing. And the Sea Beast has just been another one of these that really stood out to me in this list of, of great animated films that are not Disney and Pixar, that are kind of this new, this new wave of animation. And who knows if it'll continue, but I'm really excited to see where the, where the, where the medium goes. Yeah. And the the only thing that i wanted to talk about and i think we've have we done another 2022 movie already oh we did crush we right we did yeah yes. that's what it was so kind of the same stuff that we talked about crush but i know people sort of dip in and out for various podcasts but something i was thinking about a lot sort of and it i think it it does seem like only tangentially related to the movie but We'll get into the back half why it was something that I was just continuing to think about uh, is the prevalence of anti-gay, anti-LGBT legislation that has just been sweeping the country and has really the... I found a Washington Post article about just how much it has increased because I actually wasn't sure like whether it was a real increase or whether it's just a higher visibility like whether i'm seeing more of it and it definitely has gone gone up a lot and then a lot of them don't get passed but some of them do there is the don't say gay bill Mm -hmm. in in florida and then the denying trans kids access to gender affirming care in georgia there are the the two big ones that that really come to mind. So that that's the sort of stuff. Georgia, Texas, and Idaho are three of the big ones. But yes, mm-hmm. it's a, but so many other things as well. Yeah, and we we can talk a little bit in the back half about why those sorts of things were what I was thinking about. This I is mean, not an. I'm hearing you talk about it for me who has seen the film. I 100% understand why. And like you said, it's a little bit tangential, but it's a, it's a, it's a connection that makes sense and is an easy one to draw. But you know, it's a little bit of a spoiler. What happens in the movie to explain how it connects? Yes, exactly. It is not an overtly, uh, an overtly LGBT movie, so don't don't go into it expecting that. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not not spoiling too much, and just forget everything I said. You know, come back and listen to this after you've after you've seen the movie. For sure, yeah. It's a it, just go watch it. It's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, let's talk. Do you want to say anything else about this uh, beloved year that we're in? The year that the um, we didn't even mention that in 2022, your Seattle Mariners broke their playoff drought. Yeah, that was very Which, exciting. Uh, uh, I'm sure they were thinking about a lot during the creation of the movie. <laughs> There's a lot of water, so maybe that's a <gasps> metaphor for the playoff drought. That's true. Or, so, I mean, they are yeah. mariners, after all. They're also mariners. Look at that. Yeah, very exciting. All right, let's talk a little bit about our, our stats for this movie. The uh, <laughs> You pulled the budget, or the supposed budget. Yeah, I mean, these details are really hard because it's an internal Netflix film. Mm-hmm. They don't release the budget. It's not like other kinds of films. Uh, it's all very secret and hush-hush, all of that kind of stuff. We don't get all the numbers for like how much money it made or any of those kinds of things. But I did do a little bit of sleuthing. 
in order to find the answers to these things. It took me a little bit more work than normal. But what I found is that this film probably cost around 80 to $100 million to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is judging from a bunch of films that involve the same studios and everything and looking at their budgets and kind of comparing the work that they did and the people involved and the kinds of credits that were that were in there and then adjusting for like a little bit of an increase because it, it's like a year later than some of those other things. So guessing somewhere around 80 to $100 million, which is a pretty, it's kind of like a middle high price tag for an animated film. So it's not as high as you'd maybe have for like a Disney Pixar film, but it is higher than most other animated features that you would, that you would have. So it seems high to not have the full Disney machine behind you uh-huh. and the Disney yeah, exactly. uh, landing pad. Like Disney can afford to you spend that money because if they don't make it back on a specific film, it's sort of like whatever they made it back on the next film or on the previous film. But yeah, it's a lot right. for not them. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of money for, so this is essentially Netflix's first like real in-house animation project. Mm-hmm. And so putting that much money into the project is a pretty big gamble for them. And so it's it's been interesting to try and figure out if it was a success for them and what that means going forward as far as like an, a Netflix actual animation studio. There's also been some work that they've done with like some TV shows, some smaller things as well. And they have some major projects that they have coming in the future. So getting a sense of kind of like where the Netflix animation studio is going. But yeah, they they definitely put a lot of money behind it. They invested in it. They obviously believed in in what they were doing. So good for good for them for investing in in this kind of picture. Yeah, and I think there's just something a little it just feels a little more dangerous than and not in like in the type of story they're telling or, but it just, and it's not even that it feels a little less polished than a Disney or a Pixar movie, but it just feels like the, somehow the feeling of like anxiety from Netflix animation and also from Chris Williams, who we're going to talk about here in a little bit, just comes through a little bit in the movie to me. And it came through to me, even though I didn't really fully know all of this history going in, if that makes sense. Yes, I, I totally get what you're saying. There's a feeling like, you know, after watching a lot of uh, playoff sports the the past couple of weeks, there's a difference when your team has, like, a lot on the line and they're really playing with, like, everything that they've got. This film feels like that. Like, they've left everything on the field. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about Chris Williams because I think that is what... Well, actually, before we do that, I want to talk about the viewership. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. did in in the end. So we don't have the box offers figures for that, but we do have the first 72-hour viewership. And it had 33,520,000 worldwide views, individual views in the first 72 hours. That seems like a lot. That is a that is a real lot. That is a huge, huge number. It was second in any viewership on any streaming. It was second only to Stranger Things, which also had wow. released that week. 
So it, it's a huge, huge amount. So I also calculated what this would turn out to if it was released in theaters with an average ticket price. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd be looking at around a release of like a $300 million release if everyone is paying average ticket prices for this. $300 million for a release would make it the biggest animation release of all time. So I don't think it would be accurate to, to think that everyone would have paid to go see this in the theater. But that is a huge viewership. Like 33 million viewers in the first 72 hours is is just tremendous. That is that is up there in like the 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 biggest animation releases. Like the most people watching an animation release in the same weekend of all time. It is up there along like really big things like you know the Lion King or something like that. It is it was tremendously successful for Netflix. Obviously, we have no idea of their inner in, inside financial details or anything, but by all accounts, apparently Netflix sees this as just an overwhelming success. The The people that were involved, they essentially got a green light to make whatever they wanted afterwards, they mentioned in some interviews. So that tells us Netflix was just, just felt like this did amazing. Yeah, well, and of course, the the next test for them is going to be whether it can break through in animated feature yes, at the sure. at the Oscars. I mean, Netflix sort of famously has been trying to chase chase that Oscar, and obviously they thought they were going to get there with Power of the Dog last year, and then <laughs> like they put a ton of resources into Power of the Dog, and it just mm-hmm. couldn't couldn't get there against against Coda, and the you know in some ways just getting an animated feature nomination is kind of a win just because it's been so dominated by Disney and Pixar historically dominated by them over the last however many however many years two decades probably yeah, yeah a long time but the Disney Pixar showings this year have not necessarily been super strong uh with the exception of turning red but turning red was a long time ago now so and turning red does not seem to me like the kind of thing that's likely to get rewarded by oscar voting yes uh, except it's pixar so it's just like it's it's hard to tell good point yes that's true but anyway so i think there is potentially an opening there for this i just don't know is netflix gonna put their money behind this is it does it have a chance but I, I don't know. I guess yeah. we'll uh, we'll see. <laughs> Depending on how long it takes us to edit and upload this episode, maybe you'll know. <laughs> no, it, it won't be that long. I, I, we'll it won't surely be that have long. it done before then. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about Chris Williams? Yeah, let's talk about Chris Williams. Yeah. So he did. He was at Disney, and you pulled his movies, so you can you can talk about this a little bit. And he chose to leave Disney and I think not because he was unhappy but sort of just like it seemed like he chose to leave because it's just like at some point I have to jump out of this plane and find out whether or not this parachute is going to open yeah and yeah sort of just it's fascinating uh, Chris Williams and his so he's been in Disney a long time yeah he directed three major Disney features Bolt Big Hero 6 and Moana and this is his fourth movie, The Sea Beast, but it's his first one not working with Disney. Mm-hmm. And so 
I also realized that I've seen all four of the movies that he's directed. So this might be the first director that we've covered that I've seen everything. Oh, that you have everyone. Done. I have not seen Bolt, which I did not realize he was on, but I do love Big Hero Six. And then, as I've mentioned before, mm-hmm. I think Moana is a top. Ooh, I don't remember now. I think it's a number five movie for me all time. Maybe it's definitely top ten. Yeah. I think it's top five. You you'd love Bolt too. You should watch it. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's in and you've seen these and like you you get a sense for the kind of storytelling that he does. And Bolt is a little bit more has a little bit more Disney feel than those other ones do, but it's still quite good. But he also was doing animation and working in the story department on all of those things ever since Mulan, the first Mulan, the animated film. Mm-hmm. So he's been at Disney for a long, long time. And like you said, he's he left not because he was unhappy with Disney, but because he wanted to kind of try new things and get a chance to kind of stretch his wings and go outside of what what kind of the expectations from Disney were was. He also kind of got recruited by Netflix. So Netflix had decided that they wanted to build an animation department, and so they wanted to find like top notch talent. And Chris Williams was the guy that they that they decided he was the one they wanted to go after because because of how good these other successes, these other things that he did were. And then one of the things that he mentioned in some interviews was that he was excited by the prospect of doing things that could be a little bit more. The adult isn't the right word, but a little bit more, I don't know, just a little bit, have a little bit different edge to them than what Disney typically would do. Which this um, is. I think this this movie's yeah. PG, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so ju- there's so. just a little bit more. There's a, I think there's a little bit more swearing, if I remember correctly. There's definitely a lot more alcohol. <laughs> I've got that in my notes. It's also a little bit scarier, yeah. and it also leans a little bit more on realism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what he was thinking because he had watched things like I. Uh, he specifically mentioned the film "I Lost My Body," mm. um, and watching that one and just loving like the way that they were able to deal with some pretty adult themes and things like that. But, but again, this is I, I don't want to, anyone to think that this is not a movie made for kids because it absolutely 100% is. It, that's the target demographic. But it's just not being a Disney, there's a little bit more... You can just take a little bit more risk and you can push some boundaries a little bit in a little bit different ways. You don't have to play things as safe. And he was excited by that prospect working at Netflix. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, so, and he's a really good director, um, looking, like, uh, for animation director, just looking through the interviews, and uh, I saw a panel that he did with a bunch of the animators, and those folks just adore him. It is, you can tell from the way that they're talking about him and everything that they just, it reminds me of listening to people do interviews talking about, like, Michael Shore. Mm Mm-hmm. It, they just really adore his direction and the work that he does. I think that we're going to see some lots of more good things coming from Michael William, or Chris Williams in the future. And I think you can sort like there's a lot of heavy lifting in this movie in terms of animation. Like there is just so much water, <laughs> like so much an water. unbelievable amount of water and an unbelievable amount of time spent on and under and around the water and you just don't i think they said 92 percent of their shots feature feature the ocean oh my god in this film that's so many yeah it doesn't surprise yeah. me but wow 
Yeah. And it's a lot, a lot of a lot of ocean. They had to I was gonna mention this when we talked about this the studio and the Sony Image Works, but they basically had to invent a new system for animating water for this film because they had so much water and they wanted to have the boats float on the water like real like a real boat would do. So they built like an entire physics engine to oh, wow. to yeah. process how the how the water would animate and the way that the boats would float on it so that it would be true to life. So, you know, an entirely new system that's it, it reminds me of when you'd watch something like Star Wars or like the Lord of the Rings or the Matrix where they're making basically new new ways of doing things just to figure out how to solve a problem and then it goes out to all kinds of other different places that this film is going to be one of those films the, their process for animating the water and other things in this film is brand new technology that they created for this film uh yeah it kind of shows <laughs> it, yeah. it really is uh pretty stunning it's it's amazing it's beautiful i know you wanted to talk about this studios the couple of different studios but i do quickly want to mention um nell benjamin who i did not realize was a uh, co-screenplay credited here with chris williams and i don't know if you know who nell benjamin is but once again she's one of one of our own she comes from the from the musical theater world uh she did lyrics on legally blonde with her husband Lawrence O'Keefe, who did the did the music for that, and that show is uh, not a Concord title, but it is a score that I like quite a bit and is very well received. I think they won a couple of couple of awards for that one, and then she also worked on Mean Girls, did lyrics for that, which with not her husband. So yes, so someone who I am a very big big fan of her work in the musical musical theaters and very cool to see her her get the gig here and yeah really do pretty good work with the with the story or the script as well for sure yeah and a very collaborative effort also chris williams was careful to point out a lot of the writing that was done on this one that he did was uh, was in the conceptual realm of coming up like with the basic of the basis of the story and doing a lot of the storyboarding and things like that so a lot of the writing as far as uh, particular story beats and the dialogue and the things that we typically think of with writing was done by Nell Benjamin yeah sort of kind of a cool a cool line to the the lineage of of course we had uh, little mermaid where we talked about Howard Ashman, who is a lyricist, primarily a lyricist, but also did a lot of storyboarding work on that. And I think there is something inherently, I think there's a natural jump for a lyricist to go from the collaborative aspect of writing lyrics with a composer. You know, you have to fit your syllables to their music, uh, Mm -hmm. to working on a screenplay for something that's animated where you're fitting all of these moving parts together and you essentially have to be done before you start production or at least you have to right um you have to have have your full storyboard done before people start making it real mm-hmm. yeah this is why animation takes such a long time to do yeah what, what do you want to talk about for for our studios here 
So one of the things I didn't realize until I was watching the interviews behind this is you've got Netflix building this animation studio, and I had written down some of the things that they've worked on. So there was the movie Claws, which I watched, which was excellent and I really loved. I don't think you'll like it because it's like a Christmas No, show, I have heard I, excellent things about it, though. I just, yeah, yeah it's Christmas very good. is, uh, but yeah. not your kind of thing. Um, they also did the Willoughby's, Over the Moon, and then a very weird movie, or like, I don't know how to even describe it. It's a film, but it's like multiple different short films within a single film that are all linked thematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The House. It's weird. It's not for everybody, but if it's your kind of thing, you'll love it. But if it's not, then you will might hate it. So, I don't know. Uh, and then they did Enter Galactic recently. And they've got upcoming projects of The Magic the Gathering um, TV series. <laughs> yeah, so they're also doing the Sneetches, Redwall, but also like two dozen other projects that they're working on, and I could not e- even come close to listing them all. I didn't know what most of those were, Is but I did recognize Dr. all of these. Is the Sneetches Dr. Seuss? Yes, yeah. yeah, the one based on the Dr. Seuss, and Redwall based on the classic, classic young adult novels. And listen, if they make a Redwall series, you'd see it. Uh, I'm going to be heavily watching whatever it is that they produce let me tell you those are some books that i love and like i don't know it's good it'll have an interesting feel but so there's a lot of really interesting content and a lot of very just different levels of content that they're putting together and then they also had their animation partners so they worked with sony imageworks who did the bulk of the heavy lifting for the animation for, for this film. Mm. So Sony Imageworks is heavily involved. This is basically a joint picture between Netflix and Sony Imageworks. And a lot of the labor was done by Sony Imageworks. And a lot of the direction and development and production was done by Netflix, uh, if that makes sense. It does. So, I mean, you don't want to... Yeah. If you're Netflix, you can't really go out and build uh, an entire team of animators. That would yeah, really exactly. be reinventing the wheel. Now, Sony Imageworks, you'll recognize some of the things that they've done. In the last few years, they did The Mitchells vs. The Machines, Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and Hotel Transylvania. Um, Which is... Sony Imageworks has also done a lot of... They do not just animated films, but they also do special effects packages for other films so they've done a lot of the marvel films like a third of the major marvel films including multiverse of madness Mm -hmm. um the winter soldier a bunch of those ones and also the sony ones like the spy uh homecoming far from home and no way home so a lot a lot of work that they've done over the past 30 years but they're building up like actual animated films has been kind of a recent project and those films are just really, really good animated products. And The Mitchells and the Machines is one that I absolutely adore. One of my favorite animated films of all time. And then Into the Spider-Verse just is literally tied for my top favorite films. Like with The Empire Strikes Back and Beauty and the Beast. It's right up there as my favorite film, one of my favorite films of all time. Incredible work that they're doing. This one also shows just some more incredible work. Just... I'm really excited to see where they're going with all of this in the future. 
Yeah. Uh, Spider-Verse is the one that I really was thinking about while watching watching this one. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about why. And of course, we'll probably cover Spider-Verse at some point. I think it's our highest jointly rated movie because I also have it at number two. So yeah, I think so. That'll, that's future stream it. Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone else you wanted to talk about or should we truck That's it. The, you know, the one other person that I just wanted to mention that I adored their performance on this film is Jared Harris. So. Yeah. Jared Harris. So as Captain Crow, I don't have a lot to say about Jared Harris, but uh, he's also in a show that we both love, the Foundation TV series, and uh, he plays Harry Seldon, and he's he's an amazing actor, and he does great in this film too. Uh, also so, was in Morbius. Also in Morbius, you know his performance was good in that movie. Yeah, performances were good in Morbius. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the performances were very good. Uh, you know, Morbius was a was a weird one. But no, no slight on the you know the performers from that one. It's just a weird film. Yeah, no, no Morbin. So yeah, that's all I've got for for those. Okay, I don't think I really have any advice or insight. I think this is a pretty clean watch. I think you can sit down really knowing nothing. I mean, the better the animation, stunning. So the better picture you have, the better off you're going to be. But that's just kind of true for almost every movie so yeah it's just in case anybody's wondering you know anybody anything that's made for kids uh i have a feeling that a lot of people want to know like would it work for my kids is it going to be too scary and you can think of this as being basically on the same level as something like uh, how to train your dragon if your kids could watch that one they can watch this one sure um it's a it's my kids loved it um it is not a hard one to watch it's it's great just go and watch it uh, let's take a break and we will be back spoiling the whole whole movie. All right, welcome back. We are at the back half of the show. So if you didn't pause quickly enough, quick, 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 get to your headphones, pull those out. Stop, stop the, stop the, stop the podcast because we are going to spoil the whole darn thing. I guess I'll go first since it was my first viewing of it. And yeah, as I sort of covered at the top of the show, I really loved this one. There, I wasn't surprised by how much I loved it because I was pretty primed to do it. But I guess whenever that happens, I'm always just a little scared that it's going to fall, fall short of expectations. And I really did not feel that this one did. Like that it met all of those expectations there are a couple especially as i was going back through and re-watching scenes there are a couple story beats that i'm not like a hundred percent sure worked but they were only really in retrospect that i had issues with them i guess one of them i bumped on in the movie and then that we'll we'll talk about here but the thing that surprised me the most was one of the things that I really loved about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was that it did things, especially with the choreography and the camera, that you just could never do in a live-action movie. Mm -hmm. And it does them in a way that's like, oh, yes, this is exactly what I have 
always wanted from a superhero sequence. And this movie kind of did the same thing on the ocean, particularly with a lot of those action sequences, but also with the way it sort of moved seamlessly between the like above the water and underneath the water and the way the water was able to look was just you're you're never going to get something like that in live action and you're never going to really be able to get the camera to move well i guess maybe we'll see what happens with avatar the way of water later this year um, yeah. <laughs> maybe james james cameron will will prove me wrong figure out a way to make but, it work mm-hmm but until then, so so that I found really surprising and really satisfying. And yeah, I just loved it. Excellent. I'm glad that you loved it. There's always this risk, too, when, a, when you recommend things. And you're like, I sure hope they like it as much as I hope that they were going to like it. Because for me, I just absolutely adored this movie. I think part of why I adored it so much might have been the surprise effect of like, I had no idea what I was getting into and sat and watched the film and just, oh, it really took my breath away. So many of the different scenes. As you said, the animation is just something else. The the ships and the water and the creatures, it is amazing Um, and so immersive and really just dragged me into the story. But also there are a lot of story beats where... Most of the time, the story decisions that they ended up making, I was worried that they would go one way, and then they went the other direction exactly the way that I wanted Mm, them to go. mm -hmm. So uh, that really made me happy and satisfied with it. There's uh, the performances I thought were altogether really, really excellent. And I don't know, I have this as one of my favorite animated movies of all time. It really jumped up on that list and blew me away. I could watch this 50 more times and I would love it every single time I watched it. How did your second viewing, when you rewatched it for the podcast, how was that different from when you watched it for the first time? That's a good question. It's a So the second time that I watched it, I also watched it with my kids and my family. Um, so that was a lot of fun because I got to see their reactions to it. Mm-hmm. It was... I was not quite as into it as much because I was paying a little bit more attention to how they were responding. So I was thinking a little bit about the podcast and thinking about how they were responding. So there are a couple of moments where I was a little bit more out of the the movie and kind of... kind of seeing my reaction and their reaction to it more than I was seeing the film itself. But for most of it, it still got me right back in and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, makes sense. Do you want to say anything else here up top, or should we just get into the the scenes that we have? Let's go to the scenes! Alright, the first one is yours. I think this is a pretty obvious one. This kicks the movie off with a bang. So what do do we got here? Yeah, so as you said, this is kind of the start of the movie. There's a little prologue sequence before this goes but uh the beginning of the movie is you have the inevitable the ship that is sailing under the the command of captain augustus crow uh with the first mate jacob holland and they are sailing in search of the i I forget what they called the the creature the the big red sea monster whatever they ended up calling it um and so they're in search of this monster and we get this sense that there's or we get this kind of introduction that these people have this job, this profession of hunting down sea monsters. Uh, and it has very much like a Moby Dick kind of vibe. This captain is trying to find the big red sea monster that 
that took his eye and uh, is looking for revenge against this thing. And they see it in the distance. They see the seagulls following behind it and they're ready to go after it. They look behind and they see another captain that is being attacked by another sea creature. And they have this moment of deciding, should they go back to help him or should they go and pursue their own glory in hunting down this other monster? Jacob Holland persuades the captain that they should stick to the code and go and protect the other, the other ship. And they go in there to, to save them from this sea monster, this giant... I don't even know how to describe it. It's like tentacles, but also this weird, like, sharp kind of beak thing that has kind of a horn that comes yeah, off of it. Yeah, it's got a snapper, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of a snapper. It's more beetle-y. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a weird-looking thing, but it still has, like, the tentacles that are going all over the place. Big, massive cre- uh, creature, and then they have this huge, epic fight with the with the sea creature uh, right here to start off the film. Tons of oh, action, yeah. incredible cinematography. It's impossible for me to describe what happens, but what really blows me away about this is just how the movement of the camera and the ship and the sea monster and the people that are all involved, it is so dynamic and just really... You know, it fulfills your expectations and also subverts them in different uh, times. And you're not sure exactly what's going to happen. You really feel the desperation of these people as they're fighting against the sea beast and their experience doing it. But at the same time, like the you feel the the creature and it's this fight against the against the ship, and it's really believable the way that they pull it off. As you said before, the weather and the water and the way that all of this works together just intertwines in this beautiful choreography that as soon as I saw this, I was entirely hooked in the film. It's one of the one of the best action sequences I've seen in any film, let alone in in an animated film. Yeah. And the certainly the choreography is pretty stunning. The cinematography is great. But one of the other things that I also really appreciated about, particularly on the ship, these action sequences, was just how well thought out all of the different tactics and all of the choreography seemed to be. Like you got that, um, it's it starts so innocuous innocuously, but you get that opening shot of all of them hitching themselves to the side of the boat mm-hmm. and then leaning off with their spears. And it's like, at this point, we've seen how big those sea monsters are. And we're just like, yeah, there's no way humans can take these <laughs> these things down. Yeah. And then the movie does such a good job of establishing like that there's this combination of they figured out how to do this. Like they... They know their plan and they're good at executing their plan, but then they're also extremely good at improvising on the fly. And that's what you see from Jacob as it really establishes him as someone who is supremely confident, supremely talented, and then also maybe just has always gotten by on his talent. So maybe is just a little too cocky, something (laughs) that's going to come back to get him a little bit at the end of the movie yes 
And they, as they were putting together the production of this, they really thought through the mechanics of how they would go about like a fight between these people on these boats and these sea monsters. And it's obvious on the in the design that they did this. You know, they thought through everything. They have them on the lifelines. They have these little platforms that are on the edge of the ships that you normally don't have on these kind of sailing mm-hmm. ships so they can stand there and have their harpoons and be off to the side. You know, when the tentacles come on board, they're kind of, you know, it's... It's not that they're ready for them, but they are prepared, and so they are able to respond to the different kinds of things that happen. And as you said, they're able, they have enough preparation in lots of different situations that you can tell that they're improvising based on experience. They are able to use the, the sea beast itself and like use it as terrain to move around to get to where they need to go. And they are very capable in knowing the dynamics of the ship. And that's one of the other things that I love is that the ship feels real like it feels lived in and all of the things that they do make sense in the space of the ship so you can visualize it in your mind and understand how physically they are getting from point a to point b and moving through all of these all of the choreography yeah it's something that could so easily get confusing because one of the things about a ship especially on the water and I guess in space too, any ship, is where down is can change. Right. Because the, you know, a spaceship obviously is malleable, but then a ship ship, like, the can turn and it can be sort of 90, 90 degrees or, or whatever. And so they really navigate it really well. There's a couple moments where Jacob, like, Jacob is falling towards the water, but the ship is essentially perpendicular to the water and it all like, but you never feel unmoored, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you like you, (laughs) you never feel like you don't know which way down is. You never feel like there's just stuff happening that you, you can't track and you can't grok. And it would have been really easy to do that too, because in order to make this work, it requires just a backbreaking amount of work and planning and storyboarding and execution and reference shots and just animators putting everything together. And you can just blur those things to make it easier for you. And that's what a lot of yeah. stories do is they're just like, you know what? Uh, it doesn't matter if everyone can can follow dynamics of the situation perfectly. We'll just, you know... It's, uh, it will they'll start at point a and then stuff will happen and they'll end up at point b and what happens in between isn't that important uh this film obviously doesn't take that approach they go with a believability approach at every single step of the way yeah and one of the other things that they do here i mean it's important with every movie like every movie has to establish the stuff that you want to pay off at the end of the movie at the beginning of the movie like that's just storytelling 101 but Animated movies, movies that are made for kids, have to navigate this particularly tricky line where it needs to be obvious enough that people who are like preteens or teenagers are going to track those through lines. But then it's it can be a little the pitfall of that can be it can just feel a little too paint by numbers. And the it's one of the things that Disney and Pixar have historically done so successfully is they're able to lay that groundwork without knowing a lot of the time, not always. I think we've 
seen a pick we like we saw Lightyear this year which did not do this particularly well but th- this movie does it exceedingly well I think it it establishes that um what's the captain's name uh captain crow captain crow it establishes before the fight scene starts that captain crow doesn't really care about the rules of the ocean to fulfill his mission and instead it's jacob who has to say no we follow the code we have to go save these people and so by doing that it shows the difference in their two characters but then also shows the relationship between the two of them and how close they are and it does it really quickly and really powerfully without calling a lot of attention to it because you're mostly focused on what's going to happen in in the movie well one of the things that i was going to add that i loved about the scene is the way that the character is brought out in the action and this is Mm -hmm. this is something that's really important for me in any kind of action sequence is that i I, i'm not a big fan of action just for the sake of like the beautiful choreography and those things I, i love that but when you have an action scene that also the the way the action is happening is drawing out the the importance of different things to the characters that works really well for me and one of the things that we see here is continuing those themes we see jacob over and over doing things where he is rescuing another crew member or throwing himself in the way in order to protect someone else and going out in line and willing be to be able to step into the unknown a little bit in order to just in order to save other people or to distract the sea monster for the group captain crow though does this very obsessive thing where he gets his eye onto the creature and kind of ignores other things and jumps off without regard to the safety of the ship or to himself and it really highlights the different way that these characters are approaching the the situation at the same time i do get the vibe that the captain crow does care about his crew and he's a good captain it's just that he's so obsessed that he loses sight of that uh for moments in time when when he has the object of his obsession in his sight well, and I think it shows that he, yes, I think he is a good captain and cares about his crew, but he cares the most about Jacob. Yeah. When Jacob goes overboard, he like he screams out Jacob, and then he just like launches himself off the ship. Yes. Yeah. Um, which does create the. Cause we didn't talk about it at the top of the show, but one of the other things this movie does really well is there are a lot of like shots there are a lot of (laughs) moments where it's like oh this could be a poster this could be a wallpaper on your computer this and one of them is him just like flying through the air jumping with his spear over like his back with with his spear oh my goodness that shot is amazing it's really great it's one of those things that like if you were filming it with real people you'd be like yeah i should where's my pulitzer <laughs> like I, yeah it's amazing i deserve it just for this shot it is it is absolutely pe- there's a lot of frames of this film that you could just pause it and frame it and put that right up on your wall and that is one of those moments it is absolutely stunning yeah and the the culmination of that moment i think is really cool as well because it shows him essentially like landing on the sea beast and then it he jams his spear into the sea beast in what feels like a pretty graphic way Mm -hmm. but you don't see any spear penetration instead you just see you get the sound but then you see the slit narrow on the sea beast's eye Mm -hmm. which i 
I mean, how else are you going to do it for a PG movie? But I I did think it was a little funny doing this movie back to back with it because we talked a little bit about how obsessed they were with eyes for it. (laughs) And they really do the same thing here Mm -hmm. with the Sea Beasts, I think, as a way of showing their humanity, of showing that they're creatures who feel things and yeah i was gonna say that it feels that like that's exactly what they're doing with it and i believe it's just coming back to me that in one of the interviews they talked about that they specifically tried to design the eyes of the creatures that you were supposed to feel empathy for um mm-hmm. so they would give them like big rounder eyes whereas the ones that are just scary and you're they're you're you're not supposed to be worrying about those creatures and you're just supposed to be scared of them. They give more like insect eyes or like multi-part eyes, but not like the big round um, eyes. Mm, so That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the other things that I wanted to mention about this scene, this is, I, watching the interview with these animators, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone more proud than they were of their work in building the rope animations for this show. Um, oh really? Yeah. So oh, I didn't even think about uh, it. They do. They are great. Yeah. So apparently, ropes are like notoriously incredibly difficult, and people just don't have ropes in in animated films as much as possible because they're so hard to animate. And so they created an entire system for simulating ropes that like builds. Mm-hmm builds actual rope like multiple threads that are all twined together and then builds them so that they have the right amount of like uh, slack and tension and then they model these into the things and so all of the they have tons of ropes in this movie and there's rope all over the place and uh it feels like they added more rope in because they're like we can do this now add 10 more ropes into the shot so they use a lot of it and there's a lot of people using the ropes and swinging on the ropes and the rope they're always in a way that makes sense and i think that really helps the action of this film the way it plays out i hope they called it the rig rig <laughs> i can't remember what they called it but that would have been a great a great name they probably didn't call it that. <laughs> who knows they probably called it like rope dynamic set or something like that um can i talk about the one thing i don't like about this scene it's probably yes. my biggest issue with the movie yeah go for it maybe Let's there's a maybe there's a reason that they did it that i just like am missing but i don't so the end of this sequence um he cuts off the horn of the thing and then he the horn starts floating up and he's swimming up and then the tentacle comes and gets him and pulls him down, and then the movie blacks out. Uh-huh. And it doesn't explain... Like, it seems certain that he should be dead. Like, I don't understand how he is not dead after getting... Like, he's already been holding his breath for, like, 90 seconds, and mm-hmm. then he just gets dragged down by the tentacled monster. And I don't... I don't know what this does for us because it did like when I was watching it the first time I was like, oh no, he's like been like mind controlled by the sea beast. And so I spent like 20 minutes thinking that the only way, yeah, yeah, that the only way he got out was because he got corrupted and that this was going to be like an invasion of the body snatcher type movie. And it's not. So I just, no, it's obviously not. And so I just don't, I'm not sure what they were going for here. And I'm guessing my bump was pro- like, I'm guessing 
not a lot of people thought the way I was thinking, but I don't know what they were trying to do here. Like, I don't know why they couldn't just have him escape. Yeah, I'm not sure. I totally get what you're saying. I didn't bump on it very hard, but uh, at the moment when I watched it, I was like, huh. But then I just glided right off of it because uh, I, I wasn't worried about it. I think that I think that what we're supposed to think is that Jacob saved him somehow and that we just didn't see how it happened. So I don't know how that would work. I have no idea how that would even be possible. But I think that's what the show is in, intending us intending us to see. Yeah, I don't really have an explanation for it. I just didn't bump very hard on it because I moved off it pretty quick. Yeah, it, it might just be my my brain. And I, I did wonder if there was just like a little sequence that was cut here. That's also possible, that, yeah. That, that, that they, I wonder if maybe they had like a scene of Jacob like diving down deep and reaching out and grabbing him at the last second and pulling up or something. Um, yeah. Who knows? I don't know. But yeah, I I did I did think the same thing as I watched it. So, you aren't crazy. Um, I just didn't oh, bump well, on it as hard as you did. Not for this reason, anyway. <laughs> for sure. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about this uh, sea monster fight? Uh, no, I just loved it. It's so good. Uh, it's I it's really I bought great, in yeah. so hard after this scene. I was just like, you know, oh, one more thing to say. So this is pretty much unrelated, but. I was doing playing D and D this last weekend, and there, we had a, a sea monster fight, and uh, we did it just about after I had rewatched the Sea Beast, and I was like, "Listen, I'm including stuff from this." So I took a lot of like the <laughs> shots that I loved, and I kind of planned them out as being part of the encounter that I was planning for Dungeons and Dragons. So you know, uh, worked its way in there. Nice. Yeah, I do like the little moment. Um, I can't remember. I think. Jacob gets sort of like hit through the air and then you see him like recalibrate and make himself like uh, skinny so he can fall into the water like he's diving. And it's just the little moments like that that make all of the choreography just feel well, Real. the other one that I loved is when the creature comes up with its mouth and he's inside of it and he just starts like oh, stroking yeah. to the edge and barely dives mm-hmm. off. But it wasn't like he jumps. He swims in the water in the creature's mouth to get to the edge. I don't know. I love that moment as well. Yeah, I think that's where the one where he dives into the water. I think. Yeah. I and think then immediately that's after he does the does the like dive as he's falling. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's it's it's. I don't know. I'm replaying the whole thing in my mind at this moment, and I just want to go watch it again. (laughs) Um, Yeah, let's move on and talk about our our next scene here. And this is one that I wanted to talk about. So this is after Red has taken them to the island. And once again, there's a very cool action sequence where they get uh, blasted out of her nostril and then connected to the rope Here, here's more ropeography yes but then... a lot of rope in this scene it, it feels like they're like listen we're putting the rope through its paces and it's gonna do the whole thing and you know they're swinging his pendulums it's great yeah uh but after that happens they fall asleep and then the scene that i want to talk about she what's her name Maisie. Maisie. Is that Maisie the... brumble yeah Maisie. Maisie grumble so Maisie wakes up and it's really cute it's in this like giant uh, shell, this giant like conch shell, conch conch, uh, a giant shell, 
Both of them work one for of me. Things. I'm good with either pronunciation. They do? Okay, cool. Um, it's one of those things that just, like, this is a world that has giant creatures, and it's one of those little little details that just makes the world feel real. And she wakes up, and there's uh, Blue, a little a little dog-like creature who's sniffing around in in the shell. And so she wants to say hi to this creature and sort of follows it, but the, the creature gets scared. And then they play this really cute game of cat and mouse where the Blue runs, runs outside, and then Blue is... I really just modeled after a dog does a lot of things that like pants like a dog, moves like a dog, um, <laughs> appears to hide behind a tree that it's definitely not skinny enough to hide behind, but looks like, no, I you definitely can't moment. see yeah, me it's here. Great. Yeah. Blue also has a lot of like cat-like features. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of those. And part of this is one of the lead animators on Blue has a cat. So a lot of the animation that was done mm. for this was the entire film was produced during covid so everything was done from home every shot of this movie and so to get the reference pictures they had uh, i saw like a whole reel of just all the reference pictures that the people did in their houses to put together and so that one of the lead animators mm-hmm. on blue used their cat for like all these different sequences and they so they just have video of their cat like running around and doing things and like holding it and doing weird stuff um so oh. yeah i don't know it's a lot of weird stuff i guess yeah i guess she sort of holds it in a very very cat like yeah. yeah so uh, but a lot of dog like features as well i i 100 percent agree yeah. with that so she she feeds blue and then is trying to make trying to make friends with blue and uh (laughs) then jacob wakes up and comes out and here we have this very strange uh stream it crossover where all of a sudden it is just a direct alien homage yes where (laughs) and it's so strange because this is the like Lightyear also did an alien homage uh-huh. in basically the exact same way in the movie, like to the exact same scene. But then, so it's kind of like, oh, that's funny that this thing was just in the zeitgeist, and both of these movies developed independently <laughs> did the did the same thing. But this one goes a step further, where uh, he like directly calls the movie yeah, out and it says these that's not a pet a pet's not something that's going to lay eggs in your mouth and then burst through your chest cavity which uh he delivers it so dramatically and she's like where did that come from and he's like i have seen things (laughs) i'm like oh did they did they watch alien in this doesn't seem like they have movies in this world but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he does. Maybe one of these CBs plants eggs in your chest and then bursts out of your chest cavity. I mean, you know, it's possible. Yeah. And it also, this scene also has, she do, gives him a line where he's like, what are you doing? And I think it's nice that they really just portray her as very worldly wise and yeah. obviously a little mis- mischievous, but she says, I'm afraid anything I say will upset you. <laughs> I love that moment. It's so good. Which, yeah, which definitely caught, I wasn't expecting her to have that retort, but then it was also the perfect thing for her to say. Yeah. 
It's really good. Uh, one of the other lines that I love is when he's uh, when she's like, "It's a pet." I already gave it a name, and he says, "Let me guess, blue." Um, it's just <laughs> after she just named the other thing red. You know, it's great. It's a, it's a great moment. Yeah, they they have a really really nice dynamic here, mm-hmm. and then he's trying to save her and save blue, but then of course he ends up stepping on the eggs, and then our little orange walrus walrus guys all wake up. And this was something that I noticed on rewatch. So they're trying to run, run away from the orange crowd, and the they all catch up to them. And but clearly, like nothing bad is happening to them. They're not really carnivorous. And he says, "Oh, I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about their mom." And of course, then this huge like orange walrus comes across, and they're trying to run away. And you think that the orange walrus is like tracking them down, and but what it really is is one of them still has one of her babies attached to or i guess jacob has it attached to his back and it was i knew to watch for it on second watch but i did not see it in my first watch so it was just kind of that nice little like oh yeah they tracked it and they put it there but i was so caught up in the how hectic it all was that i didn't catch it the first time so i thought that was a really nice detail it works out really well yeah for sure and you know i i love this whole sequence for the way it transitions between from the conflict because uh we thought that this was a movie about like hunting down and killing sea monsters until this moment when you suddenly realize you know the rug gets pulled out from under you i will say watching it with my kids uh addison uh from the very first sea monster was like it's so cute the one that looks hideous and scary and you're not meant to empathize with at all she was like that one looks you know the very first thing with the tentacles and the weird beak she thought that one was adorable and cute and was like i bet they're nice and i'm like what in the world are you seeing here but you know she was right there you go there you go that was all i all i really wanted to say about this sequence mostly it was that it had a stream it crossover with alien uh yeah, it's a, it's really interesting. I I can tell you one of the things that I bumped up against the most right before oh, this sure. scene. So this is a good place to mention it. I I resolved this thing though, but it took me a little while. So I I wonder if I have the same thing. When they get swallowed by the creature and then they go like into the nostril and are watching from under the yeah. water. I don't know if you bumped up on that. I I think this is exactly yeah, exactly so I did. Yeah. I was like how are they breathe like how is there not water coming in and rushing in and how are they breathing and all of those things and how are they looking out of this nostril this made no sense to me as i was watching it was that what you, uh, your reaction to that as well uh yes and it all would have been fine if they didn't leave like they didn't get expelled from the nostril in this very scene yeah. so there's clearly is like no membrane there or anything it gets so. sneezed out of the nostril yeah. So the answer is that there is a membrane, but the the creature can like can can remove the membrane whenever it's trying to sneeze. And so when it's trying to get them out, the it like pulls the membrane in and then sneezes them out. Or are you making this up? No, this or is canonical. This yeah, this is canonical. I mean, that was sort of how I had canoned it, especially because they go back in there in the scene that we're about to talk about. Um, yeah. But yeah, it would have. 
Yeah. So it would have been nice to have just a little thing that showed that showed that it was there. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, though. There's just a membrane. This is uh, in interviews. They they somebody asked them how did they breathe through this thing, and they're like, oh, I thought it was obvious there was a membrane, and they just you know she removes it when he, she goes to sneeze him out. Like apparently they thought it was obvious. Um. So mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It was not obvious, but I'm also guessing kids don't really didn't really think about, about that, that and don't really think about the physics of that. Yeah, I bumped on that, but then after I read that in the interview, I was like, oh, okay. They thought about it. They just, you know, they didn't explain it in as much detail as I was as I was wanting in the moment. But you know what? I guess they don't have to. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, should we move on to our next scene? Yes. Oh, I do have nostril physics written down here. Yeah, yeah. I have it in the next scene. There you go, nostril physics. Yeah. We got it. Uh, very good. So the the next scene here is they end up teaming up with Red after Red saves them from the giant like crab lobster creature, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And they end up kind of communicating to Red to have her carry them across the ocean. They're trying to get on their boat, but their boat is all destroyed and isn't isn't going to work. And so they communicate kind of through sign language a little bit. The creature and she carries them up on their back. And this whole sequence I really loved, but in particular, they're having this big discussion on the creature's back about, like, how to treat this sea monster and all those things. And then they go try to communicate with the creature to get it to turn, and Jacob is, like, trying to just point and do all of those things. And then Macy goes in and kind of demonstrates by hanging in front of it, which is a really cute little scene. But the scene that really struck me was when she looks back and sees all the spears that are sticking out mm-hmm. of Red's back, and she goes and starts pulling them off, uh, pulling them out, and she goes through and spends, I mean, it does a little kind of a montage scene of her spending a whole day just going and pulling spears out of the back of Red's back, and eventually, eventually, Jacob goes and helps her, like, pull out the last spear. But this moment, for me, was very evocative and very touching, and it doesn't have a lot of dialogue, and it's told basically through the cinematography but for me this was a really beautiful moment so yeah that's a i really love this scene yeah this scene has to do a lot of heavy lifting because this scene is really go like the what essentially happens is we get presented with jacob someone who has a very specific identity and defines himself as being one thing in relationship to to the sea beasts in relationship to the sea beasts in relationship to the community that he lives in. And we have to believably get to the point where he's going to throw all of that away and turn on both the life that he used to lead and the life that, and the person that he previously was. And so this scene does it in like four different ways i think Mm -hmm. it has him seeing that Maisie is the better communicator with red it has and not only that she's the better communicator but that red is able to communicate with them if if they're just willing to see things from the cb's perspective he's only communicating from his own perspective but as soon as Maisie is able to kind of like get inside her mind and think from from Red's perspective then the communication works and so he learns that lesson about perspective taking yep exactly and I do love I didn't notice this specifically on my first watch but when she 
does do the sort of like boat steering motion and red starts steering with her the sea shanty kicks in as if to say like this is uh another way to travel on the ocean you know it sort of is likening their experience to that on a boat which i thought was really nice i like it yeah um Um, what were the other things that you were going to mention yep so then as you said him finally like pulling the spear out and helping helping her heal red it has him learning the lesson that red can help them get food yes. which is he, he fails to fails to spear the fish and then she is able to create this little uh vortex that that lets them sort of just mop the food up and mop the fishes up and and eat them but then i think the one that really struck me that i really liked and I think this is like the most important one, and it's kind of the most subtle part of the movie, is he's reading the book, and he's like, wait a minute, the, it says that they destroyed this village, but I've been up and down that coast, and I've never seen a village there. Yeah. And the I think this is something that, like, you know, we live in... The, this movie was clearly created in like a post Donald Trump world, a post like, and you know, the signs were there before, but a world where people have deeply held beliefs that they don't want to let go of. And there is no amount, like nothing that you say, nothing that you try and convince them of will make them change their mind. And I think the leading science on this, the le- as much as it's science or the leading thought is like the best way for people to change their mind about deeply held beliefs is for them to change their own mind. Right. They, yeah. they have to be the ones who present their, who break down those barriers. Because as soon as someone else tries to break that barrier down, then they put them up harder. And so I think I think it's really sophisticated storytelling for them to show him doing this, for them to show him reading the book. And it's both the both the big lie, right, that there was this whole city that was destroyed or whole town that was destroyed that didn't exist, but also the little one where he's like, yeah, their depiction of us is is not correct. Like, we don't say yard nearly this much. Yeah. And it seems like a joke, but it's just like, when you believe something so strongly that you won't listen to other facts, all it takes is just those little chinks in the armor, just those little cracks so that your brain can be working at it, so that you like, are trying to figure out what this cognitive dissonance is. And I think they do it really well for him. Yeah, well, in fact, all of these four different things, I recently read over the summer a book that's about the the latest science in in people changing their minds. And all of these four different things are actually four different strategies that uh, are mentioned specifically in the book and like the four major ways that people change their minds is, and you kind of need all of them. Uh, one of them is contact theory, that just like being in contact in a situation and showing empathy for another person allows you to kind of like change your viewpoint on on someone. So getting to know people that are different from you 
is a big part of what leads people to change their minds about uh, about these kinds uh, about people in those circumstances. Uh, another one is just perspective taking. And when you are doing something where you are trying to see things from another person's point of view, then you are more likely to understand them and be able to be able to see things from their perspective and then also break down your the only the your own barriers within your own mind um another thing is working towards a common goal with someone from uh, from yeah. a different group and there's a lot of research behind this that with especially like groups from that that are kind of built up opposing each other you put them on a project that's unrelated to the thing they disagree about and just have them like working to fix a car or working to you know like in like a survival scenario or trying to build something that that breaks down a lot of barriers and then the last one is uh, you know there's a, a lot of studies about how much evidence is able to change people's minds but when you have someone that's in a situation that is ready to learn then a lot of these kinds of small bits of evidence like the thing with the yars is the kind of thing that breaks down your barriers and one of those small things can create kind of like a a cascading effect of all the other uh, all the other bits of information that you see that that don't fit that don't that don't fit the idea that you already have in your mind. And so it takes a lot of this information until it finally creates a cascading effect and all the all the um, misinformation comes crashing down. So it doesn't happen at once. It happens over a period of time. And often it's something small that kind of breaks through in that moment. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very impressive that those are all the things that they're including in seeing Jacob, who is a person that's defined his life be behind killing sea monsters, and then makes the decision right at the end of this, when they arrive at the island, to take the spear and break it over his knee and say, no more monster hunting. Which doesn't go so well the oh. first time. So. <laughs> no, it, it does not. But I think it actually happens before that, because the storm is coming. Yeah. And they, you don't see the decision because they're going to show it to you with the spear later. But I think him symbolically going into Red's nostril again, um, yeah. like that's him symbolically leaving the world above and going into the, her, going into the sea world, right? And there's also a lot of shots of like how beautiful it is mm -hmm. down there and how. Um, and it's contrasting it with how stormy and perilous it is above them. And yeah, I think that's all intentional. Yes, I 100% agree. So yeah, I don't know. I, this, I found this part really moving. And it's the kind of scene that's really easy to get wrong. One thing I was really nervous about with this, with this scene is that it would be too much like How to Train Your Dragon, which is... I don't know. I felt like How to Train Your Dragon does some interesting things with this, but they make the breaking down of the barriers so easy. Like they mm -hmm. spend like three minutes together and all of a sudden they're like best friends. Boom. Yeah. And I like that this one took the time to gradually break down the barriers um, and show someone that's changing their entire worldview and how hard that is, but that it is capable, that people are capable of doing it. I don't know. I loved it. This 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 is one of the reasons why I love the film so much is because it goes beyond the action and has this message that I think really works for me. 
Yeah, and I think that segues us pretty well into the next scene, the last scene that I wanted to talk about, because I'm pretty conflicted about this scene. So th- this is the scene where it's basically immediately follows this. Yes. Um, there's that little scene afterwards where he tries to break the spear, but then Red delivers them safely to this island where they're going to be able to get help, but then they see the like evil king's ship. And Red just, like, has fire in her eyes, right? And she wants to go down and destroy that ship, and the ship that is a symbol of trying to destroy her. And Jacob sort of, like, tries to talk her out of it, and she does not. And you get to see, like, a full sea beast rampage where she goes down and she destroys the ship and she is about to kill the captain when um captain horn i think it's a gun yeah captain hornigold yeah to kill captain hornigold but then jacob stops her by shooting her and then she gets angry and comes over and sort of is very menacing towards jacob and Maisie, and jacob you know, stands in, stands between Maisie and Red and is like, no, you're not going to hurt her. And so I'm sort of of two minds about this. I think the story beats here are, like, pretty murky. I think it's a little confusing, like, what story exactly we're trying to tell about how Jacob feels about Red, about how Red feels about Jacob and Maisie. Maisie gets hurt, and then he has to give her a blood transfusion and so it's like are we trying to say that she really is a beast or that she has like these beastly nature because she is dangerous to Maisie she hurts her um in the in the rampage to get there and so I think that's like a little confusing but then there's also a part of me that is like well trying to fix these sorts of relationships that have been built on bigotry and bias and uh as we're going to talk about at the end propaganda like can just be really hard and really messy and and a lot of times shit happens when you try and do a lot of times the people that have been harmed by those kinds of things when they're like in a situation that they're confronting something that's harmed them they react in very strong ways you know, it's a if someone does something that is homophobic or biphobic, I have very strong reactions to that, and uh, right, like I yeah. feel a lot of anger in that moment. And uh, a lot of times, people will try to like do this thing where they're like, "Well, you know, just like blow it off, ignore it, whatever it might be." But I don't think that's helpful. A lot of times, like it, it, there's an importance of recognizing the anger, and like these ships, these uh, these hunters have killed so many sea beasts and it makes sense that she would be like really scared of them because they she's been avoiding them for her entire life trying to just survive by by you know either destroying these ships or or just like hiding from them constantly and it's always it's always a threat so it makes sense that there's a little bit of fight or flight the other thing though that i really love about this scene that's that's not quite along those lines is that I love that she's portrayed as a as an animal um like she's she's a she's a creature she's not 
she has a personality and it gives it a little bit of a human personality but at the same time she is an animal and she has instincts that are a big part of her and just because something is an animal like animals are dangerous and the relationship that human beings have with wild animals it's an imp it is important to understand that potential danger while also understanding that the, that these animals still have value and that when human beings are treading on their space that like we are the interlopers in that in that case and so that's part of the message that i really got in this moment especially the second time that i watched it like this is this is her space that they are trespassing on. We have to understand as human beings that the that an animal is not going to react in necessarily the predictable ways that we might expect them to. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense or helps in in your uh, in your feelings with it at all. Um, it does all make sense, and I think that is like where I was. I just feel like the story beats are not all that clear here I, ju I just think this is like the one place where it's just a little murky what we're supposed to be feeling and where we're going and like maybe that's okay maybe that's intentional but it did it didn't feel intentional mm -hmm. especially on rewatch to me yeah it's uh, i mean there's also just incredible shots when red is up and like destroying that ship and it's just oh, oh my yes, goodness 100%. absolutely terrifying but there's also, along with what what you're saying, there's also, like, thematically, there's so much smoke that makes her seem so dangerous, but also obscured, and it's hard to tell, like, exactly what's going on. I think that part of what they're trying to do is make it so that when Captain Crow arrives, you kind of see his perspective of seeing Red as an immediate threat. But maybe the mm. the way that they are getting there, all the pieces don't quite connect as perfectly. It's not quite as well choreographed as we mentioned with like that fight scene earlier on, where everything felt like like the perfect inevitable step from one thing to the next thing. And this feels a little bit messier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was all I wanted to say about that scene. Excellent. Yeah, I don't have anything else from Should that scene either. It's a, you know, it's it's wild. It's terrifying though i mean that that moment is really scary yeah and it is nice to see as you said like that animalistic side of her the beast side yeah it, it reminded me of the movie nope um yeah so, i was thinking about that when you were just talking about yeah, it just now. Sim yeah. similar kinds of ideas like animals have value and they're they're animals and they're they have value like intrinsically in and of themselves but they're not human and i think that's an important like distinction to make um so, I don't know. Yeah, just some thoughts there. Yeah. Should we move into cleanup? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Um, I'll go first. Um, so, sort of like the big twist at the end of this movie is this realization that all of the lies have, like, the reason these stories have been told about the sea beasts is because of a direct propaganda effort by the king and queen and that's by the the crown and that's the reason that i really wanted to talk about the lgbt bills the anti-lgbt bills that have been being introduced and because i do think like at its core like the reason they made this movie now is because of like how hard you have to fight to be able to tell your story and how hard you have to fight against lies and how important it is to be the one who wins to be 
the one who is in power to have control over the story that gets told about you and how important it is for the people in power to be truth tellers. Because if they're not, there just is not really a great mechanism for combating that. And they do it to get rich. Like that's their entire objective is wealth and power. Um, Yeah. And I agree with you the way that they've leveraged like the tools of wealth and power in the state in order to go through this massive propaganda effort to get people to buy in to an eternal war against these sea sea creatures is just, Oh, I don't know. That was a lot like that. That was emotional for me. That moment when Macy stands up and like says, it's all a lie and the people are responding. Great moment. Yeah. And great climax to the film. Yeah, great moment. I don't know that I like 100% bought her finding it out from the the seals of the seals of the book. A little bit but, convenient, yeah. Um, yeah, but I I think it was fine. Yeah. It, I don't really have a better solution, and I think it was more important to do it than not do yeah. it. Yeah, I agree with that. And maybe they could have seeded it more throughout the entire story. Like they do show that seal a bunch of times in the book, a bunch of times throughout, throughout the entire Yeah, time. they have the book a lot. So which... it feels like they were trying to foreshadow that, but, but I agree that it feels a little bit like deus ex machina ish in that last moment where she figures it out based on the seal. But you know, I agree having the message is more important than making sure that it, that they perfectly thread all the things together to establish it. Yeah, absolutely. I only have one other thing. What what do you what else, what do you have for? Uh, I've got three things. They're mostly small things, though. So one mm-hmm. of the things when they go to the throne room of these of these rulers, the the you know the propaganda ruler sea monster killing mm-hmm. people. The throne room is an entire map of the ocean and the world. It's on the floor oh, the way that cool. this map is. And in order to cross across it, you have to cross the ocean to get to the land, which is where the thrones are at. I thought that was a really cool. uh, Yeah, that's cute. I didn't know that. You'd have to go. You you have to pay very close attention. I only noticed because of the interviews that I was watching. Um, Mm. The other thing is there is one of my favorite shots in the. And we talked about how there's a lot of just great shots in this movie, but one of my favorite ones is that moment where Jacob and Maisie are in the water. And the sea beast is, like, down there underneath of it. And it just gives us the shot of them, like, floating. And the thing in the darkness, like, up uh, down below and how big it is. And then it gradually drifts mm-hmm. away. Oh, my goodness. That moment just absolutely floored me. That's a great shot. Uh, it is great. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention is the ending was a little bit... I was a little bit torn over the ending because it felt like they... Like this moment where they decide that they're not going to go exploring or they're going to leave the sea monsters alone and all of that stuff. I'm not how, sure how you felt about that ending, but I'm not sure if I liked it or if I didn't like it. Because on the one hand, I get the message and how it fits in. But on the other hand, like I really wanted to see a sequel to this one. Um, and it felt like they were closing off the idea of being able to explore to other places. I just wanted to see this world explored in more detail. So I'm not sure what you thought about that ending. Um, I... I don't remember. So who who decides not to explore? Like the town, yeah. The, the kingdom there's this, renounces. There's this narration their at the end. Ways. Yeah, there's this narration at the end where Maisie's like, "We don't have to travel out into the ocean. We'll leave the sea creatures, and they'll leave us, and we can live in harmony that way." Something to that effect. And it very clearly she's saying like, "They're not going to go into the sea creatures story. We don't need to know what's out where they're at." 
we don't need to explore those places. We can just leave them untouched. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I felt uh, about that. I see. I didn't, I guess I didn't, I don't think I read it that way. I read it as sort of an anti-manifest destiny yes, for sure. thing. Like we, we don't have a need to do this, but I didn't read it as a... As we're not going to do it. We won't do gotcha. it. Yeah. 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 We don't need to go out and conquer it or anything like that, but... Um, you know, if if the, right. if our ways, our paths lead us in that direction, perhaps we will end up in that place eventually. Because don't don't they sail off on red? Well, only at the last moment. Then they go like live on an island, and it shows them like sitting oh. in, on an island, just like in a little shack, you know, like like fishing or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think there could still be. If that is the case, I think it actually probably does leave it open for a sequel. And then you probably start the sequel with they haven't been in contact, but Red comes to them for oh, help. That sounds good. Yeah. Okay. I'm on board now. Yeah. That, that solved the problem for me. That sounds great. I do know that. So Netflix told them that basically after this film and the performance, they told Chris Williams and the team, like, whatever you want to do next, we'll green light it. And they talked specifically about a sequel. And uh, Chris Williams said, you know, what Netflix told us is that they're willing to do a sequel, but they're not going to force us to do one. And only if there's a really good story to be told will we go do a sequel. And so right now I'm working on a different project with Netflix that they've already greenlit and I'm very excited about it. So I don't know what he's doing next. I know he's working on something and it's not a sequel to this film, but it's, I don't know. It's exciting to see. I mean, I think that makes sense. Like, Pixar didn't make Toy Story 2 immediately after Toy Story. Yeah. Like, you want to show that you can make other worlds before um, I agree. just pigeonholing yourself. I agree. So the, the last thing I wanted to say is they do have this line that I don't think 100% means what they think it means. Or if it does, I don't really agree with it. Which is maybe you can be a hero and still be wrong, which I think they say a couple times in the movie. And to me, this just has a different definition of hero from what I think a hero means. <laughs> yes. I, I, I think I know what you, where you're going with this because like this whole idea that if you're wrong and if you're hurting people, like that's the antithesis of, of a hero in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I I think they meant, like, I think the most generous reading of this is maybe you can be viewed as a hero and still be wrong, or maybe you can have hero status, but that's just not really what Maisie says when she says it, and so uh, I, I wish they'd workshopped that one a little bit more. I think it sounds better than it actually is. Sounds better than, than, it, than it actually comes off. One of the things that yeah. I like about it is this idea that like sometimes when you don't have all the information you're going to be acting in the very best possible ways that you know how to act and you feel like you're doing the right thing but then you discover new information and realize that that wasn't the right thing to be doing uh, and that you need to change your ways and just because that's the case doesn't mean that you are like a bad or corrupt person it means that you are learning and it's okay to change your mind based on new information and i think that's kind of like uh the moral that i was getting off of that yeah i think so i think that's the movie the the moral the movie is 
saying it's just like they re- forgot to rewrite that line of dialogue <laughs> for sure yeah makes sense i think that's all i have though should we wrap this up or do you want to say anything that's else? all i've got yeah let's end this all right so thanks so much for hanging out with us for the sea beast i'm glad it was only a week to wait for all of you instead of the three weeks that matt and i had to wait uh next week we are going to i cannot believe this is true but we have not yet covered a movie from the 60s so we're finally going to be breaking that seal and we're going to watch bonnie and clyde from 1967 which uh i think neither of us have seen so that that should be pretty pretty yeah i haven't seen it and i basically know nothing about it so except it's bonnie and clyde it's a historical thing that i know about but i don't know like, I didn't know this movie existed um, until until we put it on the list. So, I don't know. I'm excited to watch it and see what happens. Yeah, that, that'll be a fun one. Of course, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we really would love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. Yeah. And if you want to send us a little longer form thoughts, you can do so at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And as always, we do want to say thank you to David Stewart, a.k.a. Esteriel, for uh, helping us edit the podcast and being our beta listener. And of course, for being a, being a great friend. We last week I forgot to do the bonus question and it kind of felt right. So I think we're going to move into not doing a bonus question anymore. If the bonus question was like your favorite part of the episode and the reason you stuck around to the end, let us know and we can bring it back. But uh, otherwise, that's an important reason for to to give us your feedback so we keep molding the show into the best it can possibly always be. always trying to work on things and iterate things in order to make things you know a little bit better of an experience so yeah yeah and yeah that'll do it for this week and we will talk to you next week bye bye